This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 16, a bumper post-long weekend edition of Inside COVID-19. Coming up, why exercise is critical to maintain mental health during lockdown, insights from two editors who are also specialists in the spread of infectious disease, our regular update from global health and HIV expert Professor Alan Whiteside, the Peter Maritzburg company that's ready to restart making respirators after corruption forced them to abandon the line 17 years ago. The Zoom lash after the hugely popular video conferencing tool has become a hack fest and the race to discover effective treatment against COVID-19 after a promising 53-person trial for remdesivir. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, total deaths from the virus have risen to above 116,000 Sunday, with the U.S., now the hardest-hit nation, with almost 23,000 mortalities, surpassing Italy at just over 20,000, Spain at 17,500, France at 14,500, and the U.K. at 11,300. New York is the epicenter of the U.S. pandemic, with almost 7,000 deaths. That's around a third of the American total. Johns Hopkins University's analysis says that after trending downwards, Italian mortalities are on the rise again, while neither the US nor the UK have yet peaked. However, Spain, France and Germany are all on a declining path. The mortality per 100,000 of population is instructive. It's at over 30 in Spain, Italy and Belgium. France is at 21 and the UK 16, but the UK is double the rate of neighbour Ireland, which implemented lockdown two weeks before it. The US mortality is at 6.7 per 100,000 of population, while Sweden, which has rejected lockdowns, is now reporting a mortality rate of 8.83 per 100,000 citizens. South Africa and India are at mortality rates of 0.04 and 0.02 respectively, while China, where COVID-19 originated, has a mortality rate of 0.24 per 100,000 of population. Lockdown restrictions are being relaxed in Spain, with some businesses expected to reopen after being closed for the past month. The Americans are watching this really closely, but also in the U.S., the suddenly famous head of infectious diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci, is tipped to become yet another high-ranking official to be relieved of his services after disagreeing with President Donald Trump. Interviewed by CNN on Sunday morning, Dr. Fauci said the government could have saved more lives had it moved sooner to impose social distancing restrictions. Trump, in his turn, retweeted a message that called for Fauci to be fired. Trump and Fauci have disagreed on various issues, including the effectiveness of chloroquine, the anti-malaria drug the president has repeatedly promoted as a possible treatment for the virus. Later in this episode, we examine progress being made by various drugs that have been touted to fight COVID-19. 
inside COVID-19 from BizNews. As South Africa approaches its fourth week of lockdown, new areas of concern are emerging, including the impact of isolation on mental health. Here's Dr. Saran Motilal, clinical wellness specialist at Vitality, who is eminently well qualified to unpack the issue for us. I guess my background um, is quite diverse. Uh, I am a medical doctor trained in South Africa and spent a good proportion of my uh, career in, in psychiatry. I have my diploma in mental health as well. I was fortunate enough to be awarded a scholarship to go to Harvard where I did my master's in public health. Great opportunity and I think it's been very helpful, especially given the context that we find ourselves in um, in the current moment. Having studied at Harvard, having seen the incredible brains that the Americans possess, is it surprised you the poor way that they seem to be handling COVID-19? Yes. um, Yes and no. I think think what's interesting about America is that, again, there's so much diversity, so much brilliance, um, and and but just a lot of variety and and a lot of different takes and a lot of different opinions and so and I think that's what makes America so powerful is is that everybody has that freedom and everybody is expressing their opinions but perhaps sometimes doesn't lead to the best response which I think you know time will tell and and will definitely tell us more about how good their response has been. But I think it has been a little bit uh, surprising. We look to America as as leaders, and and I think for this particular instance, maybe that hasn't been demonstrated so well. Getting on to mental health and the lockdown, is there much of a relationship between what goes on in our heads and the way our environment is, particularly when we're forced to stay indoors? Definitely, a hundred percent. I think. I think. Let's start. Let's take one step back. I think generally, um, especially in South Africa, you know, mental health and mental well-being is starting to find its way into normal mainstream discussions and into our focus, and we're getting increased awareness. But I still think that awareness has a long way to go. Then comes along a major pandemic, and there's a lot of trauma and a lot of mental distress and upheaval that comes with the pandemic, especially now that we have to stay at home and our environments, our worlds have been upside down for the last three weeks and they'll continue to be for the foreseeable future. And I think that extra stress and upheaval has really compounded our mental health and our mental well-being and has led us into really unknown and uncertain territory. The thoughts and the frustration and the anger and the sadness or the loneliness, all this array of emotions that we're seeing and that's demonstrated by family members, friends, is very, very expected because of, of this distress that we're all going through at the moment. How do you actually manage a situation where you are having to stay indoors, there is a lockdown, but there is clearly a threat to your mental health because of all of this? Just take some people who are working for companies that they know the companies are going to be struggling to come out of this alive, if, if at all. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. I think our general health sits in several buckets. You know, there's biological reasons we go through what we go through. There's psychological reasons. There's environmental reasons and social reasons. And I think it's important to highlight there's a, there's a lot of social factors at the moment that are out of our control. Staying at home, the lockdown, um, worrying about job security or financial instability, a lot of that at the moment might feel very out of control. 
and what we should try to focus on are perhaps the things that remain in control and remain in our domain. And that's not to diminish that these external factors play a significant role, but it's one of the ways that maybe we can support ourselves in coping mechanisms that helps us not only maintain mental well-being while we're in lockdown, but also maybe helps us to cope with and deal with these external stresses that maybe we're not so in control of. The first step is the awareness and to let ourselves off the hook for maybe feeling a variety of things. A lot of people are, are feeling scared at the moment, are feeling sad, are feeling angry or frustrated, and a lot of people are also feeling very lonely. And these are all normal emotions in a pandemic. That's not to say that we should diminish them, but rather give ourselves enough time to be able to process them. Maybe every day we're not feeling our best selves. That's that's normal and that's okay. You know, we can still function and we can still be okay despite that. And I think that's the kind of the first step. You're going to be seeing a lot of mental health advice and, and I think it's valuable and it's so worth it to read it and stay informed. But the other things that are happening at this moment is we're being overwhelmed with information. We've been overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. If it's not coming from social media or the news, it's coming from family members. It's important to limit that and to structure and and make routine in our days so we're not just sitting and being overwhelmed continuously with this information that maybe doesn't really add too much. It's important to stay informed, but it's also important to not let it become too overwhelming. A lot of the information is even misinformation, which is not helpful in any way. Fundamentally, the advice would be stick to reputable sources for your information. You know, this would be the government, um, the WHO, you know, the CDC, just really trusted sites, news sources that where you get your information and to limit it. So, you know, maybe 30 minutes a day, you'll check information or you'll watch this particular news broadcast. And and that's one way of starting to filter out some of the information you're getting. It's a tough one, but I think as you start to actively practice limiting the information or limiting the time spent on a phone, on your TV, all of a sudden you're going to be exposing yourself less to those sources of information. As far as vitality is concerned, your whole business is about keeping people well, not just physically, but mentally as well. What are the life hacks that you're suggesting to Vitality members? So there are quite a few. We've actually launched um, the Vitality at Home program. I I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at it. I looked at it. I was very, very (laughs) impressed. Is much of that live? Yes. Um, so we continuously working on this to try and make sure that it's updated regularly. And and the great thing about Vitality at Home is it's open to absolutely everyone. And what we have at the moment and what we're continually updating is a fitness at home channel, nutrition at home channel and a mental well-being at home home channel. And what you can find on these different channels are educational materials, videos, podcasts, all sorts of information to try and maintain your physical activity, your healthy eating, and your mental well-being while you're staying at home. Um, The way we vetted the resources that are available on the site is we really put thought into what's useful, what can we do, what can people still do even though they're at home and even though we're going through a pandemic. So we try to really filter it and make it useful, resourceful information that you can access now to try and maintain both your general physical and your mental health. How important is that link, that relationship between exercise and mental health? Extremely important. It might not feel intuitive. I think we're all well aware that physical activity has great benefits to our over 
all health. You know, sedentary lifestyles can be a huge risk to premature disease and death. Um, so, so I think we've established that physical activity is good for our health. But what we've recently been seeing is physical activity is is really, really good for our mental health as well. Uh, there was a study published in the Lancet Psychiatry in 2018, which was really interesting because what it looked at is the relationship between physical activity and mental health. And what they found was that individuals who exercise reported 43% fewer days of poor mental health compared to individuals who did not exercise. And this is for all exercise types. All exercise types um, were associated with a lower mental health burden. And it was seen that this mental health benefit really was noted in um, people who exercise for longer duration, so up to 45 minutes, and more frequently in the week, so three to five uh, days a week. So this is quite significant, the link between physical activity and actual mental health and mental well-being. What about the people who might be sitting at home with clear mental health issues like getting into depression or just feeling completely out of sorts? What could they do? Yeah, great question. I, I think the first thing is, especially for those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness, it's so important to continue on the advice of your healthcare provider, continue your medication as prescribed, and to reach out to your healthcare provider should you be experiencing any problems at this time. For people that are going through unmanageable mental health distress, there are many facilities and hotlines available that can help in this situation. For example, SADAG, um, who we will be working with uh, as well in Vitality, have hotlines and crisis hotlines that people can call um, just to talk about this and to talk about the distress they're going to. It's also important to remember to talk to people around you, to people you trust. This is something that we're all experiencing and it's important to discuss it and to let people know so that they can also support you in finding help. It's imperative to reach out to healthcare providers and to get the help that you may need in this time. Yeah, don't underestimate it. Just to, to close off with, you did work at the Department of Health in, in Gauteng. How well prepared are we or do we have the facilities here uh, to manage this COVID-19 uh, pandemic? Yeah, so I think what we can all feel extremely proud of is our government's response um, to COVID-19. I think it's been absolutely stellar. Uh, you know, it's, it's been world class and probably better than most nations. The lockdown, I think one of the reasons, one of the main reasons was to try and allow ourselves the time to increase resources, to make our hospitals a lot more prepared to deal with any potential crises that may arise in the future. And I think the government has really used, utilized the time to do that. So, in short, I think, yes, we've, you know, we've had long-standing problems, but I think they've done a great job, and I have full faith that that job will continue into the foreseeable future. Inside COVID-19 from Business. The combination of a PhD and a job in journalism is rare. Even more scarce is when those PhDs have specialized in modeling infectious disease expansion as per COVID-19. Well, that's exactly what we have for you now in Dr. Nathan Geffen, who's editor of GroundUp, and Marcus Lowe, editor of Spotlight, who's busy with his PhD in infectious disease at the University of Cape Town. 
Welcome to Marcus Lowe and Nathan Geffen. You guys have written an extraordinarily good piece. And I say this because I've been asking many people in our country, in South Africa, how is it that the South African infection rates of COVID-19 are so low? And up until this morning, I never got a straight answer. Just by way of a little bit of background, though, Marcus, what is your interest in this field? Well, I, I edit Spotlight, um, which is a kind of a public interest health publication. You know, we're a donor-funded publication. Our only goal is to increase public understanding of health issues to make sure government is held accountable for policy decisions around health and implementation around that. Um, but then I'm also doing a PhD at the University of Cape Town in computational modeling of infectious diseases. So this, all of this is right up my alley. I'm actually modeling tuberculosis. So that's where my interest was, well, still is, but obviously COVID-19 has overtaken all of that. And Nathan, from your perspective, uh, Ground Up is, is pretty well known. What is the purpose of the publication? The idea is to publish news about human rights issues. Most of it published under Creative Commons license so that the bigger news publications like yourself can republish it. And uh, we try and focus on the kinds of stories that mainstream publications just don't have the resources anymore to, to go after, such as basically how various government policies are affecting people living in informal settlements, um, various vulnerable groups around the country. And your PhD was also in a very aligned area with the discussion today. Yeah, um, my PhD look, basically looked at uh, computational modeling of the HIV epidemic. Uh, so, yeah, indeed, uh, a confluence of unfortunate events has resulted in both Marcus and myself having a little bit of knowledge about this area. <laughs> well, help us, the rest of us. Why are the numbers in South Africa so low? Nathan, maybe you want to carry on? The first thing I need to say is they might be low because they actually are low. We don't, the, the, the point of our article is really to say that we don't know. There just isn't enough information. In order to get a more definitive answer, uh, the government is going to have to test a lot more people over the next few weeks. And there is a plan to do that. Uh, there's a new test that's going to be implemented, hopefully, within the next week using a, a device that's actually been used for TB testing up to now uh, called the Gene Expert. And there are hundreds of these devices around the country. The government's intending to use about 180 of them for testing uh, for COVID-19. It just so happens that the company that developed this device has also managed to develop a test for COVID-19. They did it originally for TB, but now they can test for COVID-19 as well. So the machines are going to be repurposed for that over the next week or two. If that can be implemented, if the amount of testing can be scaled up, dramatically, then we should get a better picture of the epidemic in South Africa. It's quite possible our numbers are low because we, we locked down early. We, we took action early, even before two weeks before the lockdown already, social distancing measures were, were introduced. That might have worked. We don't know. That's, that's the real point of our article. We just don't have enough information. Marcus, the question I guess that people are asking around the world is that flattening the curve is all very well, but eventually people have to come out of lockdown and uh, eventually the theory anyway is that most people in the population are going to contract this virus. Is that a, uh, in the South African context, is, is that something that is accurate or even relevant? 
Well, I, I think even that we don't fully know yet. I mean, my my best guess is that something like that is the case. We probably will have to live with restrictions of some sort for many months at least. But I want to bring it back to the testing question. So the ability we, that we have to make informed decisions on whether we lift the lockdown or whether we keep this or that restriction in place, those decisions have to be informed by what we know about what's happening. And that's why testing is so important. We don't, at this point, I don't think we know whether we can safely lift the lockdown. Um, we also don't have enough information about what measures is needed after are needed after the lockdown. The more kind of forensic detail we have on, we have so many cases, so many in this area, so many in that area, the better position we'll be in to say, well, we need to keep economic activity going as far as possible. We can safely lift these restrictions. The tests that you spoke about earlier, uh, are they, Nathan, are they also going to be able to reflect antibodies, given that the next big thing is if there are people who've had a COVID-19 and have recovered and are not infectious, maybe they could go back to keep the economic wheels turning? That's a very good question. So the way the tests are currently done at the moment is we look for a specific part of the viral RNA or DNA, depending, I mean, it, it's a long, complicated story, but basically we're actually looking for the virus itself. The, the gene expert test that I talked about earlier, that looks for the virus directly itself. An antibody test, which a lot of people are very hopeful about, will look to see if your body has developed antibodies to fight against the virus. If you do have those antibodies, then that means that you have at some point been infected by the virus. But it doesn't tell us whether you're currently infected by the virus. Uh, the nice thing about an antibody test when, it come, when we eventually get them is that they're usually pretty cheap and they're very quick. Like you can get a result within about 10 minutes. If you've ever gone for an HIV test, you, were, you would know that, that that's how it works. You go, you get your result within about 10, 15 minutes because of doing an antibody test. The problem here, however, is if you do test antibody positive, another test directly looking for the virus will have to be done to see if you're still infected with it or not. And then a second problem is is that there are actually quite a lot of technical problems at the moment with the antibody tests that are being used in some countries. There was a write-up in the, one of the world's leading medical journals the other day about this. So I don't think we should get too excited at this point about antibody tests. They're a while away, at least probably a month, if not more, maybe several months away. We don't have enough information on that yet. By the way, Alec, if, I just want to make a point about our lack of knowledge and, and yet that there are some things about this epidemic that we know a lot about compared to other epidemics. These days, public opinion moves at the speed of Twitter, I suppose, and people want answers quick, 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 immediately to all sorts of complex questions. Now, unfortunately, this epidemic is only a few months old. This virus didn't exist in humans until probably November, December last year. And unfortunately, science just doesn't move as fast as people would like it to. That's just the way it is. But at the same time, for no epidemic in history, have within a few days or a few weeks of the epidemic being detected, have we been able to sequence the genome of the virus? For no epidemic in history, after a few weeks of, of discovering its existence, have we had a test 
for the virus. So, so it's incredible. The precedents that have been set here are quite incredible. It took about three years from the discovery of AIDS to identify HIV as the cause. A, a disease was discovered that was killing people in, in, in uh, America in 1981, and it wasn't until about 1984 that the cause was identified. Yeah, we know the disease, we know the cause, and you can go online to various websites and you can get updates every 20 or 30 minutes or so of the number of recorded cases around the world, the number of recorded deaths around the world. It's quite incredible. So although there's a lot we don't know, it's quite amazing how much we do know and how much we're learning and how quickly we're learning about this. Unfortunately, just not as fast as people would like the the, the knowledge to advance. But but we, we really are doing incredibly well considering if you look back upon past epidemics. I, I suspect in, in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, most towns that were hit by this just didn't even know what was happening. Marcus, from your perspective, is a lockdown a good or not a good thing? Well, I mean, in my view, it's definitely the right thing. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a strange space. We're making decisions, you know, we're making our best guess decisions based on incomplete information. But I think there's very compelling evidence from other countries that if you leave the virus to spread, it can, you know, it can escalate very quickly and you can have hospitals overrun with people and ventilator capacity having to be, you know, people having to make tough decisions about who gets um, ICU care, etc. So, you know, based on the limited information we have, I think it is it was the right decision. I don't think we know enough about the current situation. Well, I don't know enough to say whether it should continue or what exactly the restriction should be after this. Just this question on kind of what we know and what we don't know. Part of why we wrote the article was because we do get these numbers, right? We, we mm-hmm. kind of fixate every day. It's like what, watching for the latest cricket score. We want to know how, you know, how many cases are there today, how many deaths. Um, and the point of our article was to, or one of the things we tried to do was to show that that's only a part of the picture and it's limited information that is, that might be skewed in some kind of systematic way. Like, you know, one of the arguments we make is that instead of looking at all the cases simply as a single progression of, you know, this is how much the epidemic is growing, there's value in saying, well, we had a lot of imported cases and the travel ban means that imported cases have basically stopped. That could be one possible explanation of why the rates aren't going up so much. But then while we have imported cases on the one hand, on the other hand, we have local transmission, transmissions that happen inside the country. That is the real fear. So that, that might initially be growing at a slower rate. But in time, that can grow exponentially and overwhelm the healthcare system. The difficulty that comes with the shift from imported to local transmission is that three weeks ago, it was really quite simple to say, if you recently traveled to Italy and you have symptoms, you should get tested. We just don't have anything like that today. I mean, the symptoms are quite similar to many other things. So... We're in this position now where we're not doing enough tests, but it's also very hard to know where to go and who to test. I guess the, the point was that those are these are plausible explanations for why there might be a lot more cases and we're not picking them up. 
Professor Alan Whiteside has been writing a fascinating report on COVID-19, the war, if you like, uh, Alan, and it was interesting to see this week that you pulled out the Second World War, what happened there, the phony war to begin with, September to May, and then the chaos between May 1940 and the end of 1941. And the enemy that mankind is facing is a little bit like what the Allies faced there. But I guess the question has to be, is South Africa specifically still in the phony war phase because our infections appear to be very low by global standards? That's such an interesting question because, as you say, If we look at the data, it does look as though our numbers of infections in South Africa are extraordinarily low, just under 2,000. So then the question is, how well is the intervention working and how long can it keep the the lid on the epidemic? And I guess the other question is, you know, in in the United Kingdom, people are talking about 80% of people developing COVID and, and living through it before the epidemic has run its course. Is that true around the world? And these are questions I really don't know the answer to, I'm afraid. I wish I knew more. But I would say that the price of security is eternal vigilance. And I do think that South Africa has to set up a really good monitoring system and see what's going on and be prepared to crack down even further if it's necessary. We have that ability because we went through the AIDS epidemic. It's also interesting to notice that in South Africa, the lockdown might be extended, but it has an economy which really couldn't afford that. I don't think any economy can afford the levels of lockdown that we're looking at. Let's put it this way. I'm sitting in Norwich in England, as you know, and there's already talk of our lockdown being extended. It should end on Monday, but I think that every likelihood is that it will be extended further. Now, what it's doing to the economy is just unimaginable. It's the small uh, businesses in the economy that are going to be worst affected. I think we'll see bailouts for the big ones, and we've certainly seen that in the UK. We've also seen a mobilization by the Chancellor here to try and support people, not only through subsidies for salaries, but also now yesterday we heard that he's going to look at supporting the charitable sector. So if a government is prepared to invest heavily in the economy, then I think it is survivable. That's a question not so much for South Africa, because I think we could see some nimble uh, fiscal policies there. But I think in countries like Fortini, Zimbabwe and so on, I think it's a very, very bleak future. Alan, um, what about the whole BCG story? I see you did note in your latest newsletter, and in fact you pointed to peer-reviewed research, whereas uh, the the one we've been referring to from NYIT is still going through the peer-review process. Maybe for non-academics, why is peer-review important? And then maybe take us into that research. Many South Africans are watching this like hawks. Yes, uh, aren't we all? because I think so many of us have those little scars. <laughs> We're thinking, oh, good, maybe, just maybe there's, there's a small advantage to having had that as, as, as children. Basically, what peer review means is that the paper has been sent out and been looked at by a range of academics. And uh, it, the way I do it, and I, I run a journal called the African Journal of AIDS Research, is any article that is submitted to us is scanned by the editorial office. So... There's a first scan which says that if you're writing about China or chiropractic treatments anywhere in the world, you're not going to get in. You know, goodbye, thank you, nice try. So then when we get a journal, when we get an article in, it goes out to people after the editors glance at it. They will allocate it to two people to look at it 
and make sure that it shows common sense, that it is scientifically accurate, and that it is publishable. And that's the process of peer review. Basically what it is is scientists taking a first look at an article to make sure that it has something worth saying. Now, things can slide through the peer review process, and I think particularly of the autism and MMR scandal that hit Britain and the public health system here, where it was an article that was supposedly peer-reviewed, but that shouldn't happen. Peer review is something that we want to uh, have there as a way of... It's a quality assurance for, for, for journals. So why I cited that one article in the in the blog was that I'd seen the talk of this, and then I found that one of the cellular immunology-type journals had actually published on the fact that the BCG may provide protection against certain illnesses, and it had been reviewed, so it seemed to me worth mentioning. I think this is one of those areas which is really open for uh, discussion. I hope it's true, but we don't know yet. We need a lot more work on it. And then the, the other little bit of controversy on BCG is exactly when it was implemented in South Africa. As South Africans, we're keen. You pointed to your arm. I know I have it on my arm as well. Uh, do you have any idea? Because there is a, a, a research paper that says it was, imp- it was introduced in 1973, uh, but that would seem rather strange given that it had been elsewhere in the world for 50 years. I don't know, but I do know that I had mine well before 1973, and I suspect you had yours a bit before 1973. A little. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah. We we need to get to the bottom of that one as well. As I think about that, I think I had it in about 1961. I think we were lined up at school, at primary school, and we were given it in 1961, 1962, that, that era. Wow. You've got a great memory. Yeah, it's just come back to me. Because I, I remember being lined up at school for this, this, uh, this little scratch on the arm, which is what it was. Today it's done for infants, uh, so you, you wouldn't remember it, but I think it was quite new then. The mark that you've got, that's definitely BCG. That, yeah. Uh, it's not yeah. smallpox or anything else. No, BCG. Moving on to the seasonality story, which you did focus on in your blog. Everybody's looking at it, but we don't know yet. Uh, the trouble is we're too soon into this, this epidemic. I mean, it's, it really is only three months since we started seeing significant numbers of cases. It does seem that there are fewer in the Southern Hemisphere than there are in the uh, Northern Hemisphere. Maybe that's going to be uh, because of the, the winter there. But um, And there also have to be temperatures at which this, this virus won't operate. We've also got quite a number of cases in Iran. Saudi Arabia has got cases. I think the real question about this, and, and, and this is the perhaps the key focus, is we don't know what's going on. Because effectively what we do know is the number of deaths, but even then, and even in the UK, we think they're underreported. However, death is a fairly uh, binary way of being. You're either alive or you're dead. So we should be able to count death. We can't really count COVID cases unless we do confirmatory testing. Somebody who is going to be counted as a COVID patient either needs to be counted that way diagnostically and recorded that way diagnostically by the medical reporters, or it has to be done with the COVID test. Now, the COVID test is an antigen test which picks up an active disease. What is really going to be the game changer is going to be the uh, antibody test, which will tell us how many people in our society have had this disease. And then we'll really we'll be able to start making plans. To some extent, that would also be really good news for workers, because if you've had it, then you can go back to work. 
a little bit like what they're doing in China or had in China with on WeChat. They had QR codes which said either you were green or red. If you were red, go back into isolation. Yeah. If you're green, you're okay. But the UK was talking about. In fact, uh, I know our Linda van Tilburg reported over a week ago that this antibody test was supposed to come out, I think, last week. Uh, has it? No, it hasn't. No, and uh, and it's very, very um, funny, and as much as things can be funny in this rather dire set of circumstances, that the British government, the Ministry of Healthcare, ordered millions of these things. They haven't taken delivery because they're not good enough. I think they're under development. They're very rapidly under development. We thought that the antibody test would be out a week ago. It's still not out uh, a week later, and uh, there's been less emphasis on it. Nonetheless, I think we do need to stress and understand it. It will be a game changer. It's got to be accurate, though. It doesn't help you if you're going off half-cocked on that one. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's what the Minister of Health said. He said uh, a bad test is worse than no test. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. My old friend, Melanie Vaness, who runs one of the best chambers of commerce in the country, the Peter Maritzburg Chamber, dropped me a WhatsApp this morning about one of her members, Ian Ambler, who joins us now uh, with an innovative way to help the country fight COVID-19. Your company, Ian, just tell us a bit about it, Clifford Machines. Alec, um, we're a small business privately owned by myself and my partner, Graham Raynor. We um, turn over roughly 100 million rand a year. We are a mechatronics company. We specialize in design and manufacture of automated machinery. We export 95% of what we make. Our biggest market by far is the USA. Uh, We export around about 65% of our turnover a year are special machines made for the USA. We have uh, approximately 65 employees. They are a fantastic, enormously talented bunch, about 25 of them engineers. I don't think you will find better engineers anywhere else in the world. We're very proud of our team of people. They're obviously going through a tough time now, but they're tremendously talented. And we are, um, despite the challenges of lockdown, etc., which is obviously hurting our people and our business, We are all, as a team, rolling up our sleeves, and we're determined to come out of this thing better and stronger on the other side, and we are hoping for the same for the whole of South Africa. It's a tough time, but um, we're going to get through it. And all of this from Peter Maritzburg? Correct. You made ventilators in the past. Clearly, there's a desperate demand for ventilators now, not just in South Africa, but everywhere else in the world. Why did you stop doing that? Alec, it's a long story, and this goes back to the early 2000s, around about 2003. I had been with the company then for roughly seven years, I think, already. Essentially, we developed a ventilator specifically for the African market, uh, made to be simple, robust, able to be used by lower qualified people, um, not confusing uh, it had, uh, it was very simple, mostly mechanical. It had battery backup in case of load shedding or power failures. It could be carried in an ambulance and, and carried to a patient in distress and then plugged into the mains later. Very, it was technically a huge success. We were very proud of it. Um, and, um, what happened in 2003 as the, it was decided to stop marketing and making that unit for the simple reason that we ran into 
problems with corruption and we were being expected to pay bribes in order to sell them to the state hospitals. There was a number of attempts made to resolve and you just when you thought you'd got around the problem, it would rear its head, ugly head again elsewhere or at a higher level or at another level. And eventually we decided to walk away from it, which was a tragedy because the unit worked extremely well. We had some wonderful testimonies from paramedics, nurses, anaesthetists who, who told fantastic stories about the thing and we really were genuinely very proud of it. So it, it was a tragedy that it stopped. The good part of that story, though, is the reason it was stopped was not because it was no good or technically unsuitable. It was stopped for other reasons. The fact of the matter is it really is a wonderful unit, and we believe absolutely suited to the requirements of and realities of Africa in the whole COVID-19 crisis. Are you starting to make these ventilators again, given the crisis that the country is in? Yes, Alec. Um, about two weeks ago, we took the decision to move quickly on starting up with the ventilator production again. We effectively have taken our initial design, which, as we said, was well proven, used in a number of hospitals. And we are in the process of upgrading it to work with control equipment and software, which is present day. We can't use 20 year old uh, components, electronic components inside the thing. You simply can't buy them anymore. So we are in the process of upgrading that. Um, we're rewriting the software to suit those the, those components, and we are in the process of building another one right now as fast as we can, and then we will hand it over to the hospital, the local Peter Maritzburg Hospital, to do the initial tests with. How many of these ventilators would you be capable of producing? Alec, it's a chicken and egg question. Um, really, that boils down to one number is how much funding do we have? Obviously, there's an altruistic side of this of this project. We would love to help South Africans. We would love to help people in desperate need of, of proper ventilators. We also, at the same time, would love to be able to provide employment to our work for our employees, all of whom are sitting at home. That's a real issue to us, and we, we make no apology for that. That's Both of those issues are foremost in our minds. However, we also are are completely understand that no one company can make the quantity of ventilators that is required, even for South Africa, never mind other African and international countries. So we see ourselves working in a very collaborative, open environment. We are quite happy to make the, the software available. We'll post it on the Internet, open public IP. We see ourselves being able to not just make them ourselves, but put many other companies some of whom we, you know, we are able to recommend some, who could also do similar work like this based on the same design. The irony of it, Alec, is that the very fact that we are just a small company, in privately owned company in Sleepy Hollow, Peter Marisburg, is kind of counting against us in terms of big organizations like the IDC who are really rolling up their sleeves and, and trying hard here, and I have to give them credit for that. You know, in the end, I suspect that the main funding is going to go to large corporates or big behemoths or state-owned enterprises, and there's been talk of the Donnells, et cetera, et cetera. And the irony of that is that a small company of our, like ours will be overlooked. But a small company like ours can move forward incredibly quickly on a thing like this. We're small. We've got highly capable engineers. We know what we're doing. We're specialist mechatronics uh, people. We build automated machines for our living, and we have made these things before. That puts us streets ahead of where most people find themselves. And we really do see this as an enormously 
positive opportunity for, for South Africa to get these things made. But we do need funding, we do need assistance, and we don't see ourselves doing this all on our own. Have you managed to get hold of anybody in the IDC or in a area where the funding can be provided? The IDC, we made a big submission to them on Monday. It had to be in at Monday, 11 p.m., and we we made that submission. There are people in the IDC who clearly are working extremely hard on this, and I take my hat off to them. We filled in all of the forms, and we gave them all the information, etc., and we've heard nothing since. I understand that they're extremely busy, and I have no axe to grind with them. Uh, we have been trying to get hold of them, but have heard nothing. And I think, again, the fact that we're this small business without the sort of political clout or political connections kind of counts against us. Ironically, though, we really do have a lot to offer. We're just a bunch of engineers in this little town called Peter Marisburg. We're not terribly well connected. And I think if we spread the word out there and people understand what we have available and what we can offer, I think we could do an enormous amount. And I know South Africans are good at this type of thing. When there is a crisis we can roll up our sleeves and move forward. It's it's much like Cyril Ramaphosa was saying again last night. We absolutely see ourselves as part of the South African landscape and environment. It's our country. We love it. It's There, there are people out there dying from, potentially dying from this uh, COVID-19. We want to roll up our sleeves and do everything we can. And at the same time, help our people who are currently stuck at home without work um, and their families. How much funding do you need? That's the million-dollar question, and really it boils down to how many ventilators are required in what time frame. And there does not seem to be an answer to that question. We have all the skills to be able to build these things. We are absolutely certain now that it, it is the right piece of equipment for the circumstances we found ourselves in, and we could make them very quickly. But once again, we do not see any company, certainly not our company, being able to make everything that is required. And we are completely prepared to work with other companies or government or any other organizations or investors to make this technology available. We see it as being done on an open IP basis, and we would like to do as much help to as many people as we can. It, it's important to realize that this, this isn't something that has just coming from our business. This ventilator concept was actually invented by an, uh, a specialist, a nethetologist, by the name of Dr. Don Miller an extremely clever and capable man and highly respected. He really is the brains behind this thing. And he and another uh, brilliant engineer by the name of Richard Sobey, who now actually is living in, in Australia, they started this project 20-odd years ago. I was somewhat involved then, not deeply. I've certainly been deeply involved now. But I do want to stress that this thing hasn't just been done by a whole bunch of engineers. It's absolutely been championed, driven, and uh, directed by a, a very, very smart doctor who knows exactly what he's doing and has been involved in this for, for decades. We would not presume to say that as an engineering company, we know what we're doing when it comes to uh, ventilators. We've certainly learned a lot in the last few years, but we base our opinion on its validity for this current crisis, not on what we know, but on what this uh, Dr. Don Miller and his colleagues have been saying. He's certainly a person who's worth listening to. You can Google him, and if you do any research on him, you'll realize that he absolutely knows what he's talking about and is someone we should listen to. When will you have your uh, rebuilt ventilator ready to be tested? We are in the process of making it right now. The biggest bottleneck at present, unfortunately, is getting our hands on some of the parts. 
few of which are very frustratingly stuck in customs at OR Tambo. Um, but we are working on getting all of those through. We are aiming to have our prototype, the first updated uh, machine finished the week after next, Alec, and it's looking achievable. The software is, is being done as we speak. We are machining a number of parts, and I would say that probably 70% of the parts for the first machine are now in hand, and the other 30% are being dealt with, but we don't actually physically have them in our hands yet. So the idea would be get the prototype, prove that it still works or it works better than even the, the original one, and then try and roll out as many as possible given that you get funding. Correct. Absolutely correct. Any of the old machines available, those that were built pre-2003? Yes, we have uh, one available. Um, we have an, a number of others, believe it or not, running in Zimbabwe, but you will not get a, even a broken ventilator out of Zimbabwe at the moment. They are looking at repairing any ventilator they can get their hands on. So we haven't got one back from there. We had a number of them in Edendale Hospital in South Africa, and we have been looking at getting some of those back but so far not successful. We have had interesting news, though, that they were being used there recently after 18 or 20 years of, of operation, but we haven't managed to actually locate one yet. Our efforts to stay connected and continue working has rocketed the video communications company Zoom's users from a pre-COVID 10 million to more than 200 million users today, with the company's value doubling from December to the current $36 billion. But with Zoom's newfound popularity has come a raft of questions around security issues, with hackers Zoom bombing private video meetings quite regularly now. In one case, trolls shared pornography with Singapore school children. The reaction has been dubbed the Zoom Lash. Here's the latest from our partners at Bloomberg, reporters Joel Weber and Drake Bennett. This was a company that, you know, has obviously got a product, um, video conferencing, that is really, really important right now. The thing that they realized was like, look, this business model was really great pre-coronavirus, and now it's just been consumed by everybody using this product. And that's why we, you know, I almost liken it to it's this accidental social network. Like, and <laughs> they've been growing now almost at the speed at which the pandemic has spread. And with that has come a bunch of challenges. What's a little ironic is that Eric Yuan, the founder of Zoom, was someone who was really um, kind of paranoid about making sure that he had built in enough capacity for his network to be able to absorb kind of unheard of levels of traffic. So he always had this policy that he always wanted to have like twice the server capacity of their sort of highest peak use. And so in that way, they've done a pretty good job of like managing just the numbers. But the thing that he was not prepared for and the company was not prepared for was just the, the privacy and security issues that would emerge once you suddenly had the entire world using this and using it in a way that they had not designed it for. You know, people are putting their entire social lives, as you put it, uh, on this platform, which was designed for, you know, like work video conferencing. I think it's helpful to kind of think of the problems in kind of three categories. You know, yeah. one is these issues about uh, how, what kind of data Zoom gets about you and how they use it. Another category is um, security vulnerabilities that, that arise where, you know, Zoom can be used by hackers to get malware under your computer or hackers could use it to take over your webcam and spy on you. 
Um, and, and the third one is, is incidents where people are just sort of, you know, whether it's sort of bored kids who are home from school or kind of white supremacist trolls are using it to kind of invade people's meetings and disrupt them in kind of horrifying ways. And so Zoom, to its credit, has been very quick to respond to almost all of the concerns that have been raised. I mean, they've, they've patched these vulnerabilities. They've changed their privacy policy. You know, they've hired all these consultants. They're getting, you know, sort of white hat hackers to come do penetration tests on their system. So they're trying very hard, and I think it's a good, very good faith effort to try to deal with this stuff. And, you know, as Joel pointed out, a lot of this is just the fact that they've grown at this in this kind of timescale that no other social network has had to contend with. I mean, and to get to get those numbers out there, I, Drake, what was it? It was like 10 million users, daily users? 10 million in users in December, and then 200 million users, probably more than that now. But when they announced it a few days ago, they gone from 10 to 200 million, which is just, you know, it's like this crazy orders of magnitude growth. And, and to, when you really think about that, it's like it's basically critical infrastructure. That's what we call it in the story. Like it is the thing that, you know, you're talking to your colleagues with your, your you know, my kid's classroom is using it for their morning check ins. It's and people are going on dates through this or having cocktail <laughs> mm-hmm. hours. Yeah. With one another. It's, totally. it's just an amazing how it's become sort of the software of the moment. This comes from the initial idea. It was a really simple interface. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Worldwide, the race is on to discover an effective treatment for COVID-19. Among the promising drugs are hydrochloroquine and remdesivir. Gilead Sciences announced Friday that in a study of 53 severely ill patients, the application of remdesivir resulted in most of them improving. Promising indeed, but... As it was only a small trial, the jury is very much out. Bloomberg hosts Carol Mazar and Jason Kelly spoke to Brian Scorney, a farmer analyst at Baird, about remdesivir and other treatments, plus when we can expect a vaccine against COVID-19. I think it's all hands on deck. I can't even count this uh, at this point how many different companies have announced press releases with programs to develop something to, to handle this epidemic that we're seeing. There's a number of things already in development, and there's multiple um, ways that people are thinking about targeting uh, the virus. I think the most promising in in the near term for having an effect is is trying to adjust some of the downstream effects of the disease. So, you know, I look at companies like Roche and Regeneron um, with their their drugs that target IL-6, really stops one of the biggest, uh, most uh, fatal manifestations of the disease, which is this over-response to the immune system. I think those are, are very promising. So a number of companies looking to target the virus itself, stop stop the viral replication. Um, there's a number of those in clinical development. You know, I, I think those are a little more ambiguous because, you know, this is a new virus and we really need to, to, to kind of understand what it is and uh, where it's replicating to well, design something specific. Well, that's what I want to ask you, because if we design specifically a vaccine for COVID-19, if you know, it mutates, does that mean we still don't have a vaccine for, you know, the mutation? I mean, so, or or if a lot of people have ultimately had COVID-19, we don't know because we haven't done enough testing, Brian, mm-hmm. that do we all have immunity? And so having a vaccine isn't as important as it, as it, as it once was. 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think that's a great question. And, you know, unfortunately, I think at this point, it's really too early in the disease to, to really know um, what's going to happen. You ask, you know, we're going to start looking at people to see if they're immune, if they've had um, antibodies responding to this, and, and if their own immune system can recognize it subsequently. Um, you know, we're still in the very early stages. It doesn't seem like people who have immediately been infected are getting reinfected uh, in any large extent. And, and just based on kind of classical immunology, we would expect that you would be protected to some extent for, for some at, at minimum short period of time. But is it something like chickenpox where essentially one exposure gets you lifelong right. immunity? Or is it influenza where, um, you know, see the, the virus changing and, and the immune system really can't handle um, the changes in the virus as it, as it goes season after season? Uh, we really don't know. I mean, it's, it's a much different virus than either of those. So there's reasons to believe uh, it, it can find, wind up falling somewhere in between. But I think it's very early stage for that. And then the vaccine is, you know, it's sort of the same thing is it's going to be something where we can develop a vaccine and there'll be something that gets adjusted every year or is one vaccination going to give lifelong protection i think it's just way too early to really to really know the answer to that yet and brian help us understand you know for those of us trying to get our heads around this more effort on therapeutics vaccines testing like where are you seeing the most action and where are you seeing the most promise even from an investor's perspective and i'm going to ask you where do you think with what you know just to tack on to that where should the efforts be placed at this point is it a vaccine or is it dealing with those who come down with with uh the ailment well, I think the most near-term thing that we're going to be able to handle is, is people who come down with the a actual ailment, right? And, and when you think of what happens to these patients, you know, they get pneumonia, they have immunological responses um, that, you know, send them in, in very frequent cases uh, in, into fatal conditions. There's ways to intervene with the, the downstream effects of what the virus are causing, and, and we know a lot of those. And like I said, Roche's Actemra is one way uh, people are exploring it, right? And then you know, the next stage is to actually target the virus itself. I think we're a little too early for that, but that'll be something um, that, that, that we'll be able to move relatively rapid on. A vaccine, I think, is unfortunately a, a little bit more of a long-term issue, and again, because you think about what, what you need to do for a vaccine. For a therapeutic, you're willing to take some risk because the patient actually has the, the right. disease itself. Um, with a vaccine, I mean, you're talking about to really ma maximize your, your efficacy here, you want to inoculate virtually the whole world, right? So the safety profile has to be really, really very clean. So you really don't want to move too fast with a vaccine. You right. move very fast with a therapeutic. And I'll just remind everybody, Jason, some reporting earlier by Bloomberg News just this week, you know, that a potential vaccine is still more than a year away. So despite, you know, some of what we hear in the optimism, you know, creating a vaccine is not something that we can expect anytime soon. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. And finally, in this bumper episode, on the day that the UK's COVID-19 deaths passed 10,000, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson returned home, being released from hospital where he had spent three nights in intensive care. Johnson said he owes his life to the healthcare workers of the country's National Health Service. Listen out for the special mention that the Brexit champion makes of two nurses, one from New Zealand, the other Portugal who spent 48 hours at his bedside, ensuring that he had sufficient oxygen. Good afternoon. I've today left hospital after a week in which the NHS has saved my life. No question. It's hard to find words to express my debt. But before I come to that, I want to thank everyone in the entire UK 
for the effort and the sacrifice you have made and are making. When the sun is out and the kids are at home, when the whole natural world seems at its loveliest and the outdoors is so inviting, I can only imagine how tough it has been to follow the rules on social distancing. I thank you because so many millions and millions of people across this country have been doing the right thing. Millions going through the hardship of self-isolation, faithfully, patiently, and with thought and care for others as well as for themselves. I want you to know that this Easter Sunday, I do believe that your efforts are worth it and are daily proving their worth. Because although we mourn every day those who are taken from us in such numbers, and though the struggle is by no means over, we are now making progress in this incredible national battle against coronavirus. A fight we never picked against an enemy we still don't entirely understand. We're making progress in this national battle because the British public formed a human shield around this country's greatest national asset, our National Health Service. We understood and we decided that if together we could keep our NHS safe, if we could stop our NHS from being overwhelmed, then we could not be beaten and this country would rise together and overcome this challenge as we have overcome so many challenges in the past. In the last seven days, I have, of course, seen the pressure that the NHS is under. I've seen the personal courage, not just of the doctors and nurses, but of everyone, the cleaners, the cooks, the healthcare workers of every description, physios, radiographers, pharmacists, who've kept coming to work, kept putting themselves in harm's way, kept risking this deadly virus. It is thanks to that courage, that devotion, that duty and that love that our NHS has been unbeatable. I want to pay my own thanks to the utterly brilliant doctors, leaders in their fields, uh, men and women, but several of them for some reason called Nick, who took some crucial decisions a few days ago, for which I will be grateful for the rest of my life. I want to thank the many nurses, men and women whose care has been so astonishing. I'm going to forget some names, so please forgive me, but I want to thank uh, Poling and Shannon and Emily and Angel and Connie and Becky and Rachel and Nikki and Anne. And I hope they won't mind if I mention in particular two nurses who stood by my bedside for 48 hours when things could have gone either way. They're Jenny from New Zealand, in Vicargill, on the South Island to be exact, and Luis from Portugal, near Porto. And the reason, in the end, my body did start to get enough oxygen was because for every second of the night, they were watching, and they were thinking, and they were caring, and making the interventions I needed. So... That is how I also know that across this country, 24 hours a day, for every second of every hour, there are hundreds of thousands of NHS staff 
who are acting with the same care and thought and precision as Jenny and Louise. That is why we will defeat this coronavirus and defeat it together. We will win because our NHS is the beating heart of this country. It is the best of this country. It is unconquerable. It is powered by love. So, thank you from me, from all of us, to the NHS. And let's remember to follow the rules on social distancing, stay at home, protect our NHS, and save lives. Thank you, and happy Easter. This has been episode 16 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.